0: Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawassasi, and I'm your host for the FACTS Roundtable podcast. I'm a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog. Today, we're exploring the safety of the COVID-19 vaccination from Pfizer for people with food allergies or asthma. We'll also be exploring how vaccinations work with FACTS Medical Advisory Board Chair, Dr. Shahzad Mustafa. Welcome, Dr. Mustafa. It is always a great pleasure to have you on the show with us. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for joining us today to discuss a topic that's worrying so many in the food allergy community, the COVID-19 vaccination and its safety. A few weeks ago, the Pfizer vaccination was distributed in England, and then it was reported that two people experienced allergic reactions. This triggered the National Health Service of England to issue a precautionary warning. Can you explain to listeners what took place?
1: Yeah, so I can explain a little bit, but not a lot, because quite frankly, we don't know a lot about what took place. So the details of what entailed the allergic reaction are actually not well known, nor is the history of these two individuals. So what we know is two individuals with some history of allergy. Allergy can range widely from environmental allergies to food allergy, you know, medication allergy. These two individuals had some form of a reaction to the vaccine. And the details, I wish I knew more, but I don't. And I do think the regulatory bodies in the UK took some very conservative approaches. There were extra steps of precaution to address the risk of allergic reaction with these vaccines. Since then, I think we have more information, right? So there's been a couple of allergic reactions in the US as well. What I want to say, you know, we'll talk about this at great length allergic reactions to anything, medications or vaccines, they happen. They're real. It's how likely is it? What is the risk? Who's at risk? That's the conversation that I'd love to dig in with. Because at the end of the day, I'll say this right now and I'll say it throughout, the benefits of this vaccination far outweigh the risks for most everybody.
0: Turning back to the U.S., can you bring listeners up to speed regarding our current situation regarding access to the COVID-19 vaccinations? Who is currently receiving the vaccinations and what does the timeline look for the rest of us?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question and kind of what everyone's most interested in. Many of us are clamoring to get the vaccine. So right now it's being distributed fairly quickly, not ideally, of course. It's a super complicated process with regulatory things cold chain, freezing requirements, getting it to the right people. So right now it's being distributed to frontline healthcare workers who absolutely have been in the trenches. These are people who've been taking care of COVID individuals. Even within healthcare providers who see patients, it's even further delineated out where in our system, and many systems started with emergency room positions and providers, and not just providers, but staff environmental care workers, nursing staff, so anyone in the emergency room, and then we move to ICU staff, and then we're going to move to inpatient staff, and then we're going to move to providers and uh, staff that interact with patients outside the hospital. This is Group 1A. After this, you'll move to Group 1B, which is kind of all essential workers that are not necessarily with healthcare facilities. And then Group 1C is laid out as high-risk individuals those folks over the age of 65 or younger than 65 with high risk medical conditions. So that's kind of the layout time scale. We're hoping to get through locally here. So I can't speak nationally, it differs regionally and statewide, obviously. We're hoping to get through all healthcare workers by mid to late January and then move into essential staff and get the high risk individuals. So, sticking to timelines right now, we all know better than to, to do that. But if we are trying to set some expectation, If we can get through healthcare workers by mid to late January and then essential workers and then high risk individuals in that February timeframe, we'll be on track. And then it kind of gets to a broader population.
0: Can you explain who are the high risk individuals? Yeah, so I think there
1: are risk factors for poor outcomes from COVID 19. Certainly, folks in long term care facilities, assisted living, nursing home have had very poor outcomes and they're being vaccinated earlier in the process. And then age is a risk factor, Uh, advanced age, older individuals do seem to do worse than younger individuals. So age will go into that. And then other high-risk medical conditions, younger individuals who have immune-compromised conditions, chemotherapy, or a host of other chronic medical conditions. This is so complicated, and it's such a heated, emotional debate about getting the order right, prioritizing it right. It's imperfect, I will say but it's being done very, very thoughtfully and with best intentions. And I think that's important. And there's a lot of people at the table making these decisions. So I have confidence in the process, albeit it is imperfect.
0: So individuals who are listening right now, would you recommend that they seek out their doctor to ask where they are in that list and how they should receive the vaccination?
1: Yeah, so honestly, we've, I've had a lot of individuals reach out to me too. There is no list or anything right right now. This is not governed or controlled by practices or hospitals. It's really much more um, global than that Department of Health are controlling allocation. And right now we're pretty limited. So honestly, I would tell everyone to sit tight for now. This stuff is going to be widely broadcast through, you know, news, all sorts of channels. So I would honestly sit tight for now. If you're in the general population with no significant risk factors, so it's again hard to say but we're you're probably looking at a spring to early summer kind of access to the vaccines and that's probably okay. I mean, we all know even folks who get vaccinated, you're still doing all the things we're all doing. We're masking and social distancing and not getting together in large groups. I mean, there's reasons for that that we can discuss. So, for protecting our most vulnerable and the frontline folks who have the highest risk, the general population waiting for a couple of months, I think that's okay. Um, certainly many of my loved ones fall in that. And that's a good thing because they're at least risk. But for now, let's sit tight. And as vaccine distribution increases and allotments increase and start hitting the general population, there'll be a lot more direction of who's going to get it when and where. Right now, it is very tightly controlled of who can administer the vaccine. That will be, Broadening as distribution broadens to more typical places of getting vaccinations likely, but we don't know that. So, honestly, for now, let's sit tight and continue to monitor. It's going to happen over the next weeks and months.
0: Thank you for that clarity. So now, can we dive really deep in to how the COVID-19 vaccinations work? So is there a live virus in there? And can you also touch on the side effects, such as people receiving, you know, fever or muscle aches and why those things would occur?
1: Sure. So this is a very, very uh, fascinating technology. It's mRNA technology. So this is one of the few vaccines where we are not administering live virus, like you said, or inactivated virus, dead virus, like flu flu shots. So this is mRNA technology. It's one of the few vaccines that are utilizing that, but this has been studied for over a decade and has been studied in other infectious diseases. What you do is you inject mRNA into the body and what that does, and that's directed at The key for COVID-19, as devastating as this has been, is that there has been, uh, COVID-19 has a spike protein on it. And that really, in immunology, is kind of like a sitting duck. It really sits on top of the, the virus, and it's pretty easy to address. So this mRNA is injected into your body, and it directs your body to make, essentially, the spike protein that COVID makes. And as that happens and your body makes it, the mRNA goes away. It does not integrate into your DNA or anything like that. The mRNA quickly degrades and now your body has actually made spike protein. You cannot get infected from this because it's not the whole virus. It's just the spike, spike protein. And then the, your immune system recognizes this as foreign, makes antibodies to it, and you have antibody and then hopefully protection when exposed to COVID or the spike protein in the future. So it's fascinating technology. Um, we don't certainly have studies or head-to-head trials, but in principle, it should be even safer than live vaccines or even inactivated, right? Because we're not injecting antigen. And there are cautions to be taken with live vaccines, especially in individuals with immune deficiency. That's not the case here because we're not injecting any antigen. We're not injecting you with COVID. Your body is doing the much of the work, which is really fascinating. So in principle, I'd like to say this should be safer than other vaccines. We can't say that yet, but we will continue to study it and learn from it. So that's how the principle works. All vaccines have known side effects, uncommon ones and uncommon ones. Here's the most common one. It hurts. Vaccines hurt, right? It's an injection. So if your arm hurts, that's not shocking. That's a known adverse effect. Local soreness, redness, these are common things. Low-grade fever, muscle aches within 24 hours of vaccination, very common for vaccine. That's actually kind of a sign that your immune system is responding to the vaccine. So these are very common, almost to be expected side effects. I will say for these vaccines, which are two steps, there's two injections, three to four weeks apart. I would yeah. expect individuals to have more of those side effects the second time than the first time. I think that's worth noting. But those are common side effects. And then we get into the far less common side effects that are true for all vaccines. Very rare neurologic complications. People have heard of Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS, or allergic reactions. Allergic reactions happen to vaccines. The risk of these is about one in a million, maybe even as little as one in 0.4 million. But again, we give many vaccines vaccines. And for every roughly million vaccines administered, we will see an allergic reaction or a severe complication. So those are pretty good odds. Just to put it in perspective, the likelihood of being hit by lightning is about one in (laughs) 500,000. So you are twice as likely to be hit by lightning than to have an allergic reaction to a vaccine. But it is real. It happens. I'm an allergist immunologist. I see individuals who have vaccine allergy. And I want to reassure people, this is true for all vaccines, not just this one. And the CDC has a very, very robust vaccine monitoring system where we actually report all known reactions to vaccines. That goes for everything, flu shots, measles, mumps, shingles, and that will be the case for this as well. So these are the side effects. Some are common, the the ones that aren't as big a deal. Some are very serious, but very, very uncommon we generally think the benefits of vaccinations far, far, far outweigh the risks.
0: Is there any difference between the Pfizer and Moderna vaccination? And I know there's some others being developed right now.
1: So that's a great question. At the end of the day, I'm being overly simplistic, but the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which are mRNA technology, are very, very, very similar. And clinically speaking, I don't think anyone should be differentiating between one or the other. Um, the mechanisms are the same, the effectiveness, their trials almost look like mirror images, which is pretty amazing and very reassuring. So the effectiveness really looks the same. The side effect profile really looks the same. So at the end of the day, and I've had this question, is one better than the other? My simple answer is no, you should get the vaccine that becomes available. I would leave it at that. There are, again, new vaccines being studied and will be released that may have some different mechanisms, but for now and what's available they are fairly indistinguishable.
0: Thank you. So now for the burning question that many people are asking, are these two vaccinations safe for people with food allergies and asthma?
1: Yes. I'm going to give you a very, very straightforward answer. Yes. And not only are they safe, I would highly encourage anyone with allergic conditions, whether it's food allergies, asthma, allergies to other medications to receive this vaccine, because your risk of reaction to this vaccine, despite your clinical history of allergy, is no greater than baseline. And we talked about what that is earlier. It's about one in a million, which is less than likely of being hit by lightning. So I think that perspective is important. We know, Carolyn, allergies are specific to an antigen, right? If you're allergic to peanuts, that doesn't mean you're allergic to you know, oranges or beef or eggs. If you're allergic to ragweed, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to react to cats. So you're specific to these antigens. So your previous history of allergy, those antigens are not in this vaccine. So there's no reason to believe a risk of allergy increases your risk of allergic reaction to either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. The only people who should not receive this vaccine are people who have a known history of reaction to a component of this vaccine. There's not many of those people out there. If someone were to have an allergic reaction to the first dose, first of the two doses, then there's a discussion whether they should have the second dose or not. And I want to tell you something that people don't understand, and I think it's important. Even if an individual is allergic to a vaccine, in the hands of a board-certified allergist and immunologist, we can sometimes administer those vaccines to you, even if you're allergic to it. In a... Desensitization protocol. This is something we do in our office. So if you have concerns, certainly reach out to your provider, your primary care doctor, your allergist. If you have a history of actually an allergic reaction to a vaccine, seek out an allergist. There's things we can do. We can evaluate them sometimes, and we can still administer them in safe ways. But at the end of the day, to very straightforwardly answer your question, a history of allergies should not preclude anyone from getting these vaccines. And I would highly encourage anyone with allergies to still get the vaccine. And, you know, you can't endorse it any more than your own family, friends, and loved ones. And I certainly have peanut allergy in my family, as many people know, allergic conditions in my family. And I will certainly be encouraging all of those people to still get the vaccine.
0: Is there a way for individuals to find out what ingredients are in a vaccination?
1: Yeah, so many vaccines have the ingredients labeled out and you can read them. Again, The likelihood of being allergic to one of those ingredients or components is extraordinarily low. Here, we don't have live or dead inactivated virus. That's not a factor. One of the more common components of a vaccine are polyethylene glycol, peg PEG, And it's felt that they may contribute to some allergic reactions to vaccination. But again, the likelihood is so low. I do think it's important to note there is no proactive testing kind of rule out the likelihood of allergy to vaccine. That doesn't exist. So individuals shouldn't be seeking, you know, can I be tested ahead of time? That doesn't exist. But in individuals who think they may have reacted to a vaccine, we can potentially evaluate them.
0: So before we wrap up, do you have anything you would like listeners to know about the COVID-19 vaccinations, food allergies, or asthma, or just anything in general about COVID?
1: Yeah. So COVID has been around a long time. It feels like a long time, but it's really kind of a short time, but nine or 10 months. It felt like a very, very, very long time. And it has certainly been a challenging year. Um, There's no one thing that's going to get us out of this or get us back to quote unquote normal. But vaccination is really a big part of that. And it is remarkable about how well done these studies have been in a short period of time, how effective these vaccines are and how well tolerated these vaccines. I do want to reassure people. Sometimes I hear this came together too fast. I don't trust it. The speed was necessitated by the severity of this pandemic. That's an important point. Corners were not cut. All the processes were still done. All the studies were still done. It went faster because we had to go faster. We didn't have time here. And frankly, for large studies that enrolled 40,000 individuals and 30,000 individuals, it was pretty easy to enroll people right? Because there's a lot of people affected by COVID. And I think that's an important point. You can't have a study this fast or this large for things like Ebola or Zika virus, right? So the severity of this pandemic that's affected us all lent to the speed of this development of these two very, very effective and well-tolerated vaccines. And I think it is absolutely a huge part of getting us out of this mess in the coming months. So I would encourage all individuals, regardless of medical history, to proceed with vaccination when it becomes available to them, with the only caveat being individuals with a known history of reaction to this specific vaccine. Maybe reach out, certainly, to your healthcare provider or an allergist. But other than that, there's very few precautionary steps. The risks of acquiring COVID for you or your loved ones really, really is far more than any risk of significant reaction to these vaccines. I'm looking forward to getting mine. I'm I'm waiting as we get through our really, really frontline healthcare workers. Um, And then I'm looking forward to getting it to our patients who have high-risk conditions, putting them at risk for bad outcomes from COVID, and then moving on to the general population. Again, it's an imperfect process how it's being distributed, but it's being done thoughtfully with the best of intentions, and it will get done. I look forward to kind of moving forward.
0: Well, thank you so much for bringing clarity to this topic that's a little confusing because there are just so many headlines coming out rapidly. So we really appreciate you taking the time to help us just get a better understanding on this and a better grip. So we always appreciate your positive attitude and bringing us hope every time we speak. So thank
1: you. Thanks so much. I want to wish everyone um, to be safe and healthy and a happy new year.
0: Before we end this podcast today, I just wanted to say thank you for being with us on this journey. And also I wanted to let you know that this is the last podcast of the year, and we will return back on January 13th of 2021. Thank you all for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, share, and review our podcast, and be sure to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.